How many of you are involved in education? What? It's absolutely untrue. Everybody's hand should go up. You are all involved in education. Whether it is because you have a neighbor who's less knowledgeable or observant, or because you have children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren. You don't need to have a teaching certificate to be a teacher. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I went to Yeshiva High School. <laughs> I had a whole staff that taught me. But we are all teachers. So we have to think about what it is we want to accomplish when teaching. And I hope you don't mind, but part of what I like to do, especially here in the Mayun, when there's some, so many people who are actually full-time engaged in education as a vocation, besides the avocation we're all involved with, is to also share some pedagogy. Every shiur needs a lot of different things, and everybody can have their own lists. And purposes of our shiur today, I'd like to point out that any time that we study a sugya, whether it's a sugya in Tanakh, which we're going to do today, a sugya in the Gemara, a sugya in Halakha, a sugya in Machshevet, it always has to include some methodological point which I can then apply to other similar sugyot. It should never be a closed box. It should always be something that informs and empowers me as the student, as the listener, to take that somewhere else and shed new light on it. The second piece, which is related to that, is that if you come away with from the shiur, and it was pleasant, it was enjoyable to listen to, and maybe it sheds light on another sugya, but the next time you open up Sefer Breshit, or the next time you open Masachek Tubot, or the next time you open up Shev Shmata, you are no more empowered to study it on your own than there's something missing. A shiur has to be not only informative, it has to be empowering. And the third thing is that a shiur, in some sense, and depending on the context, must have a takeaway. Some message you walk away with. It may be a message that impacts on you and your own personal life. It may be a message that impacts on your community, or even on the way that you look at things. I will endeavor to accomplish those three over the course of the shiur, which is titled deliberately, The Tragic Events in Shechem, Bereshit Lamedalit. So I'm going to ask you all a question, and I was given very clear instructions not to take questions, but that doesn't mean I can't ask you questions, um, because of the concern for the time. If you were to be asked to give a short title to Breshit Lamedalid, which is the largest source that you have, it's source two on the page, although it starts a little earlier, we'll see why. How would you title it? So... To save time, I'll tell you what you would probably say, and then just give me a thumbs up if that's what you'd say. The Rape and Abduction of Dina. Is that pretty close? Yeah, more or less. Good. Okay, I hope by the end of our hour and five minutes together, we may see it a little differently. Methodology. When we study sugyot in, in Tanakh, we are blinded by all sorts of factors that keep us from seeing the sugya in its richness, in its breadth, and with all of its exegetical parshani possibilities. One of them is, we know how a story ends. So, I'm a Balkriya, my name is Yitzchak. 
I always insist that my Gabbai not give Shvi of Parshat Vayera to somebody named Avram. And if so, I frisk him. Because I'm nervous that he has a big knife waiting for me. <laughs> to properly hear Kriyat Torah, to properly study the Ayakidah, we have to be in tension of saying, I don't know what's going to happen next. To understand the impact of the story. The fact that we all know that Avram's going to be told not to and he's going to get around and Yitzchak's going to be saved takes all of the oomph out of the story, but it also prevents us from seeing a lot of different possibilities in looking at the story itself. As a subset of that, and this is something that's going to impact a little bit on what we do today also, we are familiar with legislation in the Torah, and we often don't distinguish between different time periods. We see the entire piece as synchronous. And as a result of that, for instance, when people look at the issue of Yaakov and Esav, who we're going to come back to, you can never, never do Breshit without Yaakov and Esav. That when Yaakov and Esav and the battle that's going on over the Bechorah, the broad assumption is that it's a question of Pishnayim, of the Bechorah is going to inherit a double portion, because we know that from Sefer Dvarim. And we forget that Sefer Dvarim hasn't happened yet. Har Sinai hasn't happened yet. And it's not just a question of ha'avot kimot Torah or not, which is its own parshani question and its own agadic question. It's also a question of reading the story as it's happening, which is really the point I want to bring out. To be successful in reading narrative in Tanakh, or truth is narrative anywhere, you have to be able to put yourself in the story. That takes imagination. That takes as much knowledge as is available of society, of anthropology, of Near Eastern texts, of whatever we can gain, to give us an honest picture of what's going on here so we can be in the story and experience it as it's happening and keep our eyes open, which leads us to another blinder. It's a strange thing to say, and I always get weird looks from my high school students when I say it, but we know too much. At that point, they usually walk out, assume they got an A, and that's the end of the year. So I say it in June. But we know too much. When we read the story of Yosef, as an example, I'm going to stay in Breshit for the examples. When we read the story of Yosef and his brothers, we know, and when Yosef's playing possum, Tzofan uh, Paneach, you didn't know Tzofan Paneach was Egyptian for playing possum, but we know what the brothers are thinking, or at least we think we know what the brothers are thinking. We know what Yosef's thinking, and we forget that they don't know that. So we have to come in and, and bl put blocks up and say, I only know right now what Yosef knows, and read the story that way, and then i got to do the, the same thing from the other side. There's also another piece of blinder, and this is one that really, the two others that really impact on our story, and with that we'll then move into the story. One is that characters in Tanakh are not flat characters. They're not two-dimensional. Maybe Oliva um, Amma is. Maybe. Amalek certainly is not a two-dimensional character. Lavan is not at all a two-dimensional character. Bilam is not a two-dimensional character. And what do I mean by that? is these are characters who then get developed later in Tanakh in Bayachini literature, in Midrashim, 
and by the Rishonim, and by some of the Achronim, till Darshanim of today, who take these characters and utilize them as a way of identifying, perhaps, characters today. I still remember, and will never forget, my one visit to the future former Soviet Union. It was in 1980. Take a minute, it, it works. I was visiting with a refusenik, Saruvnik, I was a real hero in, in what was the city of Leningrad. Now, the Chuba came back to St. Petersburg. But, and, and he was showing us pictures of the Purim celebration that he had at his house three months earlier. We were there Shavuot time. He had had a Purim celebration at his house. And this guy was about 6'6", weighed about 20 pounds. And he was leaning over in the picture explaining to a little kid about the story. And I pictured the conversation in my head. And he was saying to him, Haman, and whispering, Brezhnev. <laughs> and it's been demonstrated time and time again that the way that biblical characters are developed in the Midrash is much more a reflection of the good guys and more often the bad guys of the current time of the Midrash than they are about the person in Tanakh. So Esau lives forever. Yaakov, of course, lives forever, but so does Esau. Lavan lives forever. Look how Lavan made it into the Seder. Bilam lives forever. His donkey even lives forever. And what happens is that sometimes that blinds us because then when we come back to read the story, we can't see the villain as anything but villainous. Try reading on your own. That's for fun. Parshat Vayetze. Read through from the beginning to the end without any prejudicial uh, uh, approach to Lavan. And you might be surprised at what you uncover. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to have my kids name their kid Lavan and insist I want to have a little Lavan grandson. But because Lavan is also the character of Jewish history. But it's important when studying Mikra to not let that blind us. And the last point is that we often, and I'll give an example of this, we will often take stories that seem familiar and read them as analogous, and as a result of that, take what we know about one story and apply it to the other without being very careful about it. I'll give you an example right now. If I were to ask you, what was the threat in Sdom when the townspeople came around the, the, the house? You could say it euphemistically if you want. What was the threat? What is it that they wanted to do to these two visitors? They want to, obviously, they want to sodomize them. It's Sodom. <laughs> Whatever they want to do, that's called sodomy. But we assume that it was what we would call a gang rape. However, if you look carefully at the parasha, there's nothing that indicates that there. And the reason that we read it that way is because we see in our mind an analogous story, which is very close in parallel, where it is a gang rape. And what's that? Pilagos Pigiva, the most horrific story in Tanakh. Think. Take a vote. And as a result of that, we read the two in parallel, and we assume what we know about Pilagos Pigiva and assume it onto Stone. I'm not saying, again, I'm not asking that anybody rename their town Stone, and it's, it's not that we want to, 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 uh, to uh, resuscitate their re- reputation. 
But I don't think that's necessarily an accurate read of the story. Okay, so let's take a look at our story because I believe that the title that you all agreed to, or at least those of you who responded uh, at the beginning, may not be an accurate title, and it's impacted by all of these blinders. Okay, let's take a look at the story itself and read it through. Please tell me what happens. We're going to do this relatively quickly because we're going to read it through twice. Once a priori, once without any, any uh, comment necessarily, we're just asking questions along the way. And then a second time. Okay. We'll start from Pasuk Aleph, which is the second line of source two. Okay. Uh, Dina, who is the daughter of Yaakov, comes out to see the other girls of the land. Okay. And I'm just going to ask the question, why? Now, again, here's what's happened when we study. We become so focused on what we already know is going to happen, a rape and an abduction, that we don't ask these other questions along the way. Why does Dina come out to see the other girls of the land? What? She's a teenager. She wants to go out and could be. And she's only got brothers. She's only got brothers. Maybe, by the way, we'll say that's not necessarily the case, but... It's unclear, and it's not a huge question, because put a few questions together, and then there'll be the bigger ones. Vayaro ta'shchem ben chamor achivin Who sees Dina? Now, who is Shechem? Shechem is the son of Chamor, who is evidently the king of this area. Is Shechem an only son? Yeah, we actually do know, because in the passage right above, Right? Yaakov buys land. It's in the same paragraph, in the same section. Pasuk Yotet, Yaakov buys land from Bnei Chamor of Yishchem. So Shechem has brothers. They're not as important as he is, as we'll find out later. But there are other brothers there. So there's a ruling Chamula there. The, cham- the Chamor Chamula. It's like a great name for a restaurant. <laughs> and, um, and, um, Shechem is the, is the prince among them. What happens? We're going to read it like everybody in the world reads it, which is, what does he do? Vayikach means grabs her. Vayishkavota rapes her. Right? Or has forced sex with her. Vayyaaneha now means? Violated. What? Violated. Violated, maybe what else? Afflicts. Inui. Hurts her. What? Made her suffer. Made her suffer. Right? Torture. Oh boy, we got a film coming out of this. Hey, okay. However, we have a little bit of a problem. The problem, as you could see by the strange fonts I put in here, is that none of those words necessarily mean that. Matter of fact, they may, I may actually put it in a, in a very different direction. But let's continue. What do we know of rape in Tanakh? I don't mean the law code, I mean narrative. What's the most famous rape story in Tanakh? Amnon and Tamar. What's Amnon's reaction? We're going to look back at that story. What's Amnon's reaction after he rapes Tamar? What's his... He hates her more than he loves her. All right? And this is, by the way, something that just in the literature is pretty common, that after a rape, basically what happens is a person is filled with self-loathing. They don't really want to do it, so they take it out on the victim, and they might even brutalize them further. But there's not... Because it's not about love, it's not about connection, it's not about even lust, it's about power, and it's about anger, or whatever else it's about. But look here. After the interaction, 
he suddenly becomes closer to her. What does that mean? He falls, falls in love and he talks to her and he's, he's so sweet talking to her, whatever it may be. And now what does Shechem do? What does he ask Chamor to do? Arrange a marriage. So this is very strange. Shechem sees Dina, rapes her, tortures her, afflicts her, and then starts falling in love with her and then comes up to his father and says, can you make this legal? It's just kind of weird. It's only weird if we read the words that way. We'll continue on. Yaakov shamaki ki Now that's going to be a hard phrase. What does that mean? Yaakov heard that what? What does timei et dinabito mean? Violated her. What's the tumah? What's the tumah? Now the tumah could be read just as any act of intercourse, right? What? You know, maybe. And, but we never hear that that creates tumah in any sense. The simplest read of it is, is that he had relations with Yaakov's daughter without there being a marriage. Right? It was just whatever you might want to call it, a fling. <laughs> in other words, the, the, the time here is a little bit difficult to parse. Uvanav Yaakov ad Now that's a little bit strange. Yaakov is no wilting pansy. He might be an old guy, he's over 100 by now, but he's still a strong father. The sons are still out shepherding. By the way, keep that in mind, they're shepherds. By the way, if they're shepherds, what tools do they have with them? Important to note. What? Shepherd hook. They might have a slingshot. Right? They might have other tools that a shepherd would use. Okay? We'll see that later, that there's one tool they certainly don't have. And Yaakov is silent. Why is Yaakov silent? Why doesn't Yaakov say something here? Now, what could he say? He could say, what did you do? Right? Or he could say, let's talk. Or he could say, give my daughter back. But he didn't say anything. And Bechrish Yaakov Ad Boam. He waits until they come back. Now, And so now is the meeting to try to figure out some sort of a, an accommodation here. Chamor wants to make the deal. And now, Now they come in, they hear about it. Evidence the talk of the town. It's not a big town. There are no big towns in Tanakh. Right? But it, yeah, everybody's talking about it. They hear about it. They come in. They get upset. They get very angry. Why? And this is a strange line. Why is that a strange line? There is no Yisrael. Nevala Asab Yisrael sounds like an anachronistic statement saying, you know, in later times in the Jew, among the Jewish people, it doesn't happen. The best you could say is that Yaakov had already been promised that his name would become Yisrael, so we can already kind of use that. But it doesn't bother us because who's actually writing this? Moshe Rabbeinu. Yaakov's not writing this. Shimon and Levi certainly aren't writing this. They're busy doing other stuff. Moshe Rabbeinu's writing this. So at that point you could say, in the Nevalah Yisrael, but that means that in that time it was considered a, an, a, a disgusting thing. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that no daughter of Yaakov should ever have relations with anybody? I don't think so. So what does it mean? So it seemed to me to have relations with a daughter of Yaakov without proper arrangements. 
That seems to be the problem. Now, you're going to tell me, but they're outsiders. Well, time out. Who else is going to get married? You ever heard of the problem of an internal gene pool? Mm-hmm. Right? So it, it, we, can't, we can't be sitting there saying, okay, all of our marriages have to be within these little families. It's going to be a little bit difficult. It's going to expand a little bit. So it seems that the nivala is to have relations with her without, without prior arrangement. So now Hamor comes up to whom? Now who's standing there? Yaakov and the brothers. Who does Hamor talk to? The brothers. And look what he says. First statement is, my son Shechem loves your... Well, that's a little weird, isn't it? Who is she? She's sister. Unless he's talking to Yaakov, which should say Bitcha. But he's not talking to Yaakov, he's talking to the brothers. What? Fine, except that he's talking about a real girl, and a, that's what I, my point at the beginning, where it's real people. It's a real girl and a real guy, and the guy wants to marry the girl. By the way, what, what's one thing we have no idea about throughout the parsha? What does Dina want? We'll never find out. Don't hold your breath. All right? Now we'd like to have them be legal. By the way, he doesn't say Shem slept with her. He just says Shem really loves Dina. Let's get married. Now, in our minds, and again, this is part of the blinders. In our minds, this is a horrific thing. A, mem- a member of Bat uh, of Yaakov's family marrying a goy. Sorry, we're all going. At this point, that's all we are. So that can't be the problem. So Hamor comes to. The brothers, and, and again, calls her Bitchem, but that's what he asks. But then he adds the following, otanu. What does he then offer? What's the next stage in Hamor's proposal? Let's marry our tribes together. Now that's a little difficult. What does mean? Our men will marry your daughters. Who are your daughters? Right. So two possibilities here. One is, meaning you'll stay here for generations and in the future we'll have that. But that's a little weird because it's all premised on being able to do this now. The other possibility is one, and I have to take a, a quick tangent, but an important one here, is how many daughters did Yaakov have? We know of one, but the truth is we know of more. When, when Yaakov, um, he gets the news that Yosef, well, we have reason to believe more, say it that way. When Yaakov gets the news that Yosef is, he thinks, dead, what happens? Remember the Pasuk in Paraklam and Zion? Vayakumu chobanav v'chobbenotav l'nachamo. Which indicates that Yaakov does have more daughters. And indeed, if you take a look at both the Nitziv um, and um, I think it's the Malbim, but I know the Nitziv, uh, Nitziv and Shadal, on the count of the 70 that go down, and the statistical near impossibility of there being 70, 69 descendants of Yaakov, of whom 67 are male, their comments are that, of course, there were many more people there, and there were daughters, and the daughters married their uncles, so they're all part of the household, so they don't get counted. Take a look at the Nitziv, 
and the Shadal there, and you'll see how they address it. But, but part of... What? But our daughters-in-law, Yehud, had already gone down and married tomorrow, no? Agreed. Except that the lineage is a lineage of, um, how do you call it, of, um, of only blood. That's why the wives aren't counted, right? And, uh, and Kolbanav, Rashi says that, Kolbanav, Kolbanav, Tavana, Hamog, Kam, Kalotav, Shaladam, Nikor, Palantav, and Sapshat. Sapshat is that it's daughters. It's possible. But in any case, it seems from here that there are more daughters. Because he said, your daughters will marry our sons, right? And vice versa, and we'll all, we'll all be one big happy family. And then what happens? Vitanu Teshevu. Meaning you'll live here. Which to us sounds very strange until we start to ask the bigger question that we got to get to in a couple minutes when we start the Parsha again. Because there's something very strange going on in this entire story. The bigger picture. Well, let's continue here. So Hamor's deal is unify the tribes. Start by letting Dina and Shechem get married. Then we'll all intermarry. Then we will all become one big happy family. We'll all do business together. This is a great place. And by the way, where is Shechem? Shechem is at the international crossroads. It is the trade routes. Come right through Shechem. Think about Sherat Gamalim and Yosef coming through there. That's what he offers. And then Shechem opens his mouth and says, Now it's unclear whether Shechem, we don't know because we lost the videotape, but it's unclear whether Shechem sees that the brothers and the father are not really into it, are not really like responding well, or whether he already had this plan. But he says the following. <clears throat> you may demand whatever price you want, and he's going to use a word here, which we have to spend a minute on, which is Habu Alameod Mohar Umatan. Mohar, which is actually in its original meaning is the opposite of dowry, but it ends up meaning a, a gift given towards marriage. So in this, Shechem is the one who actually turns it around and says, make whatever high demand you want of me and I'll give it to you. I'll pay whatever price you want to be able to marry Dino. By the way, you understand that we've gone very far afield from a rape and an abduction, but it's going to get even more, more odd in a minute. Whatever you demand, and let me marry her. Now notice what happens. And that word mirma, clearly made it big, is going to play a role. So they speak, and this is the, the reason why they speak this way. They speak this way to Shechem with deception, which means whatever they say, there's a bluff there. And they do it because they, they, that's how they treated Dina. We have a rule, which sounds like in the past we've had intermarriages, but we had a rule. What was the rule? You want to join the family, you got to do a bris. Okay. Otherwise, it's degraded. So it sounds like there's some sort of history here. Of course, that's not true that we know of, but this is all Bimirma. You want to do it, here's how we do it. Now here's the quid pro quo. If you join us by doing Brit Milah, then watch this. We will intermarry. Which, by the way, later gets translated by Chamor in pitching into the town as all of their property becomes our property. But Yaakov's property becomes our property. 
So that's the quid pro quo that they don't say explicitly, but that's what's kind of buried there. If you agree to do the breach, then all our possessions become one, and essentially we become subsumed in the larger, not by much, but the larger city of Shechem. We actually know about how big Shechem was from the El Amarna letters. Shechem was under Egyptian hegemony around this time, and there was a request for provisions that came up, and it turns out there were about 100 families there. So it is bigger than Yaakov's family, but it's not a metropolis. And this is the strange line. Meaning, if you don't agree to do the Brit Milah, Okay, somebody please tell me, what does that mean? If you don't agree to do this, then what are we going to do? Which means, Dina is not imprisoned. In other words, they're saying, look, we got a deal on the table. Either you accept the deal, and then Dina can marry, or else we're going to take Dina home. So here's what's strange. If Dina is available so that we have the choice to take her home, then why aren't you taking her now? Strange. And if she's not available, it's an empty threat. If she's really sitting there with armed guards, you know, they have a big shin on their thing, or chet, I don't know, um, protecting the house, then how is this meaningful at all? It's very strange. And here's where things get odd, because, of course, this is all Bermirman. We assume, we read it as a bluff, the whole deal of Brit Milan. We assume, of course, that there's no way that they're going to agree to it. And notice that the agreement was not Shechem has to do Brit Milan. But it was, everybody does. Meaning the whole town. You want us to join? You've got to be part of our Brit. Now, who's listening to this entire conversation, but not speaking? Yaakov. Yaakov continues to not speak. Till the end. What's Yaakov thinking? We don't know. Methodology. We've got to put ourselves in Yaakov's feet, put our, our eyes behind Yaakov's eyes, see what's going on, Yaakov's ears, and hear, and think what probably is going through his head. We're going to address that. Okay. They like the deal. Of course they like the deal. It's a good deal for them. Of course, there is a small, I'm not going to borrow from Shakespeare, but small pound of flesh to pay for this. Right? Well, I guess I did. Now, it says that Shechem, who here is called a Nar, which may be a derogatory term, or pejorative, um, doesn't delay to do it. And he, by the way, is the most important in his father's household. Because remember, we learned that there are other brothers. But he's the most important one. He's the Siaretz. Why is he so zealous to do this? To do what? Now, we would assume, when I was a kid, I read this thing, said, on the spot, he did bring me luck. That's what I thought. What is it he does? They gather the town council. What do they say? You're going to see why that's a lovely play in words. But for right now, we're going to say, these people are cool with us. Let them live here. They'll buy and sell here. There'll be merchants here. There's plenty of room for all of us. By the way, if you ever go up to the top of Har Grizim and look east, you can see exactly what they mean. Remember, I was up there once with one of my teachers, Jabo Erlich, pointed out and said, Exactly there. You can see it. <clears throat> That was the deal, and what do they add? 
Ach bezot yotu anoshim l'asher yitam liyotam achad b'imolanu kol zachar kasher him neimulim and then miknehem mekinyanam b'chol b'emtam halolanu hem. You're going to see some great irony in this. All their stuff will become ours. Ach liyotu alem b'yeshvuitan. Just agree to this and the lebas. And now this is where the mirma suddenly gets blown up because the a bluff is only good if you know the person's going to be bluffed off. I actually have a pair of deuces here, but I'm putting on a face like I've got a full house. Everybody speak poker here? Okay. And, and so the other guy folds, and I get the money. That only works if they believe it, and they fold. These guys don't fold. What? Let's go. So the question is why? Why do they do this? <clears throat> and the simplest read of it is they see a great financial benefit. These guys are rich. Look how small a group are. And look how rich they are. Remember Yaakov's wealth? And this is after he gave uh, whatever percent to, to Esau. And so you see these guys, very successful at what they do. We'll join with them. We'll do the little Brit Milah. Okay, and then we'll be one nation. It's all going to be great. And then, of course, you know what happens. Now, what is, what do Shimon and Levi do? I, mean, I don't want to read every, just because of time consideration. What do Shimon and Levi do on the third day? Shimon What are the next two words? Ish charbo. What does that mean? Shimon and Levi, each man takes his sword. Sword? Menalan swords. We do the swords, your shepherds. And each makes it sound. By the way, it's the same phrase that David uses when they're about to attack Naval. It's like everybody has their own sword. They take their sword, they gird it up, they get ready to go to battle. And they do go to battle. And they come in and they clean out the town and they take Dina out of Beit Shechem. We have no idea what Dina is saying. Thank God, Shimon and Levi, I've been waiting for you. Maybe. What does Yaakov say after the bloodbath? Because it's a bloodbath. You have fouled me. To make me stink among the people of the land. And we generally read the Vav here as a Vav HaBi'ur. Vav HaBi'ur, which is more common than we think in Tanakh, is when you make a general statement and then the Vav is followed by an explication. So the Yaakov says, you have fouled me, in what way? I'm a small group, and now I've declared war, and we're going to get wiped out. But that's not necessarily the case. It could be vavachibur. He could be saying, there's two different problems I have with what you did. One is that you've stunk me up in the eyes of the nation. We'll talk about that. The other one is, we're in physical danger. And the brothers get in the last word, Truth is, there are a whole score of problems, as we pointed out along the way. Dina's silence is a part of the problem because we have no idea how she feels about this, which would actually be helpful, especially when they take her out of the house. So in order to understand this properly, we have to go back to the beginning of the page. I'm going to ask some larger questions and preface it with perhaps the biggest question. Why is this whole story here at all? It's a long story. 30 plus psukim. Why do not need it here at all? Why? Maybe they tell me why Shechem is not a battleground for Yoshua because it's already been wiped out. Okay, you could do that in two psukim. 
I need it for. So we got to think that there's some, some bigger thing going on. One last prefatory point here before reviewing this. HaKadosh Baruch Hu's words, except in specific legal code, like Parshat Mishpatim, are often a bit vague. Nevuah is vague. I'll say it a little differently. Proximate Nevuah is clear. When Yermiyahu talks about Nebuchadnezzar, he means that guy with that social security number. But approximate Nevuah, non-mediate Nevuah, meaning something that's down the pike, is always vague. A poor man on a donkey. I don't know what that means. He's driving an old Susita, I'm not sure. I remember this. And most of the Nevuah that we have about Acharit Amim are quite vague. But I'm going to take a very simple one, staying in Breshi, and staying in a parish that we're going to have to look at. Yehuda is standing with his brothers around Yaakov's bed as Yaakov is about to die. What does Yaakov say to Yehuda? Among things, he says, Lo yasur shevet mi Yehuda mechokent mi ben raglav. What does that mean? Well, we all know what it means. It means Yehuda is going to be the king, and the kings of Israel are going to come from Yehuda. We know that. Of course we know it. Did Yehuda know that? So let's say that Yehuda thought that. And of course, there's no reason for a king while we're still living in Egypt, and then we're members of Shevet Yehuda who are slaves, and then we get into the Midbar. Okay, fine. So pass it on to your kids. One day there's going to be a Malach, it'll be from us. Surprise, surprise, surprise. The first person to be crowned king is? Tricked, yeah. It's actually Avi Malach from Shechem, but okay, we'll say Shaul. From Shevet Benjamin. What do you do with that? Yaakov is wrong? No, Yaakov was not wrong. We didn't read it correctly. Meaning and the vagueness of Nevoah allows it to play out in all sorts of different ways. Okay, keep that in mind. What was Yaakov promised at Beit El on his way out of Israel? What was the big promise? The Sulam? What was the big promise? Three promises. I'm going to bring you back and protect you. Good. That's the unique one to Yaakov. What other two promises did he get that both Avram and Yitzchak got? Well, Yitzchak got it kind of as a ditto. What did Avram got? Haaretz and Hazera. You're going to inherit this land. Avram was given that. Yitzchak was given that. Yaakov was given that. How do we know that's supposed to play out? How's inheritance supposed to play out? You go to war. You destroy the Shiva Amami. Because we all know Sefer Dvarim. And this is where my point from 30 minutes ago comes back. we got to put ourselves in Yaakov's shoes. What does Yaakov know? That he was told, I'm going to bring you back to the land. The land is yours, yours and your children. The whole land. Does Yaakov know how that's going to happen? Does Yaakov even know when that's going to happen? So what model does Yaakov have to work with in family history? He's only got one, and that's Grandpa. How did Avraham accomplish whatever it is he accomplished in the land? 
Not by war. The only war was against outsiders. How did Avram do it? He made britot. He makes a brit with Aner Shkola Mamre. He evidently becomes part of the citizenry in Hebron to be able to own land. He makes a brit with Avimelech. Avraham has Bali brit. He seems to have some sort of a brit of sorts with Malkitzedek, Melech Shalem. Avram hobnobs with kings and princes. But he creates some sort of a, a coalition which he's part of. What else does Avram do every spot he comes to in the land? So what is, what is Avram doing? He is slowly conquering the land, but not by sword, with Mizbeach. Not by antagonism, but by coalition. And here's Yaakov. Yaakov knows that that's what Avram did. And Yaakov is told, you're going to inherit the land. How am I going to inherit the land? I don't know. And this brings us to a large question in our sugya, which I didn't explicate yet, but you should all be asking. What is Yaakov doing in Shechem to start with? You ever wonder about that? So now let's take a look at the page. Source one. Yaakov is still in Haran. He went there for however long he went there. However long he was in Haran. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu comes to him just before the end of that time and says, Okay. Where's that? That's broad. That allows us a lot of room. So God told him to come back. And then, later on, when Yaakov is repeating to his, to his wives, I am that God of Betel. However we interpret that, I understand that. You made a nether there. What was the nether he made there? I'm going to make this a Beit Elohim. It sounds like you're saying, come back to Beit El. It gets better because when Yaakov actually gets up to leave, you know, sneaks out from Lavan, so where should Yaakov be headed? Hebron, which is where Yitzchak lives. Or at the very least, stop at Beit El first, fulfill the Neder, and then go to Hebron. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Yaakov crosses the Ardain, after the wrestling match, and after he tells Esav, I'll be there in a little bit, he goes down to Seir, Yaakov crossed the den and goes to Shechem. What's he doing in Shechem? And what's the first thing that Yaakov does in Shechem? Take a look at the beginning of Source 2, the Psukim right before our parak. Vayavo Yaakov Shalem Ir Shechem. So Ashbam says Pshat here, and I don't know how he knew this, because the cartography of 12th century France was not Miodema. But if you stand on top of Hargrizim and look down at the town of Shechem and look to your right, to look to the east, you will see a small Arab village. That Arab village is Salam. That's Shalem. Shalem ir Shechem, meaning he comes to the little village of Shalem, which is a city under the hegemony of Shechem. Vayichan et Pnei he camps where Pnei means to the east of the city. It's exactly what it is. He buys the land. Why is he buying land up there? 
What happened to Beitah? What happened to Hebron? And then what's the last thing he does before we get into our story? He sets up a Mizbeach and he declares God's name. It sounds like he's taking a page from Abraham. So how is he going to fulfill the divine dictate that he should conquer and inherit the land? He's going to come into the land. He's going to start living in the land. He's going to purchase property in the land. And he's going to start declaring Hashem in the land. Great idea. And he's much better equipped to do that than Avram was because he's got at least 11 kids with him. 12's on the way. Plus, I mean, at least 12 kids, at least 11 young men, at least. So he's got a bigger group that he can do that accomplish this. By the way, think about it. If the, if the command, come back and inherit the land, or eventually you're going to inherit the land, when meant to inherit it militarily, is Yaakov in a position to do that now? Not for generations. So Yaakov has two ways to read this command. Either I'm supposed to do it now, God said he'd bring me back to give me the land, and therefore I'm going to do it, Darkoshal Abraham, or he means something else, which can't happen now. <laughs> so what does Yaakov do? He moves into Shechem, he buys land in Shechem, and as far as he's concerned, this is the beginning of Yerusha Ta'aretz. I'm not advocating, pointing out what happens. So what does Dina do? Dina goes out to see who her future classmates are. Who she's going to be in, if I say Akiva or Ariel or Ezra, I'm going to get nailed, so whatever youth group. Who are the other girls of her age? Because she's going to live there. This is where we're going to live. Okay, now let's look at the key questions. What does Vayikach mean? Take. Does that imply force? Well, please turn the page for a second. And you take a look at source four. How is Kiddushin introduced in the Torah? By the way, Lakach doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily limited to marriage. But notice how else it's used. A couple weeks ago we read about Moshe saying to Hashem, you have to appoint a leader to take my place. What does Hashem say to him? Kach et Yoshua. What does Rashi say about that? Kachehu bidvarim. Speak to him. Explain to him how wonderful an opportunity is. By the way, Rashi says the same thing based on Midrash at Kach et Aharon. Talk to him. Speak to him. In other words, we're not talking about force. We're talking about invitation. We're talking about conversation. We're talking about agreement. Now, what's the next thing that happens? Vayikachota, vayishkavota. Now, the word shachav, which is an, a euphemism, because it, shachav actually has three basic, two basic meanings in Tanakh, which are to lie down and to sleep, and then by extension to die, shachavtai mavotach, which is really to lie, and then euphemistically it's used for relations, but not in any sense non-consensual. And throughout, and you don't need examples, but you have a couple examples here, of where shachav is used to indicate relations between a husband and wife, perfectly normal, perfectly fine, uh, just as an example in source 6, but it's all over the place. So, Shechem sees Dina, Vayikachota, could easily mean, hi, you're a nice girl, you want to go out to a movie? It could be very nice. And then Vayishkavota does not at all indicate anything of force. What about Vayyaneha? That's the tricky one. You guys interpreted Vayyaneha as a flick, torture, 
What are the other ones? They're really good. Uh, okay, whatever it is. We have a good collection. It's recorded, so it's fine. What? That would have to be patach. Vayya'aneha. Vayya'aneha. And a PL would have to be from Inuit. Right? Um, for drushes, it's great. But uh, it won't work here. But thanks. Now, look at what Inui means. Take a look in source 8. When Lavan, back to Lavan, is parting from Yaakov, they make an agreement. And that agreement Lavan is making to ensure the happiness and future of his daughters. And he says to Yaakov, Im benotai, and Im here is in a Lashon Tanai in a, in a Shua, meaning you may not, Ta'aneh benotai, which means what? So you might try to say, don't afflict them, don't punish them. Like, why would anybody think Yaakov was going to do that? Ve'im tikach nashim abenotai. So what does la'anot mean here? So take a look at the Gemara in, uh, in Yoma, which is right underneath that, in Source 10. Sorry, in Source 10, but take a look. The Gemara in the last parak of Yoma the Mishnah, the, at the beginning of the last part of Yoma, lists the five inuyim, the five afflictions that we engage in on Yom Kippur, or actually that we, that we abstain from, things we abstain from on Yom Kippur that, if, that effectively create inui. That's eating and drinking, that's one, etc. Tashmish HaMitah. How do we know Tashmish? So the Gemara goes through each one of them to demonstrate that that is called an inui. How do we know that Tashmish HaMitah, meaning marital relations between married couples, um, is considered an inui, meaning to, to abstain from it? The proof text is imta'anet benotai. In other words, what is it that Lavan is making Yaakov swear to? That he won't marry somebody else and therefore ignore, sexually ignore his, his own, Lavan's daughters. So la'anot could mean to avoid relations, or la'anot could actually mean, as you see from source 9, to have relations. What are the three chiyuvim da'oraita that every man takes on when he gets married? She'er, ksut, and ona. And, and however she'er and ksut are interpreted, big machlok at Rambam Ramban, based on the Gemara in the fourth paragraph of Tubot, but ona, everybody agrees, is intimacy. So la'anot could either mean to have intimacy, not forced, or could be to deprive of intimacy. Now let's read our story and see what happens. You're a nice girl. Let's get to take a walk. I'm going to suggest here means. He says, okay, we did that once. But we but we're gonna pause. Because what now happens? Shem actually gets serious about it. What is Dina thinking? I don't know. But Dina doesn't go anywhere. I'm going to suggest that Shechem, in this story, and of course we type people based on how characters develop and how names develop in our consciousness, but Shechem in this story, you might not be happy about the fact that he had relations with a girl before he was married to her, but, you know, welcome to Tanakh. Um, and to history, and to the world. Um, but Shechem did not do anything untoward here. 
And now what happens? Shem has Dina with him in the house. They're not and now he wants to make it, you know, make an honest couple out of it. So he comes to his father and says, let's make an arrangement. Now again, Yaakov doesn't know how Yerushat Ta'aretz is supposed to play out. He doesn't know. He bought land, he set up a Mizbeach, he's going in that direction, and then suddenly there's this event that happens. Big parentheses for a second. He's not the first person to do this. Avraham was told by Hashem, Lech Lecha, you know it, Me'artzacha, Molatacha, you're familiar, Betavicha, what is the next part? El Haaretz? Shereka. She says, I'm going to show you the land. Where does Hashem ever show him the land? So if you take a look at it, Avraham comes south from Haran, he comes to Shechem, and Hashem appears to him and says, this is the land, but Avraham doesn't take it at full because he continues moving. He continues moving, and then what happens? There's a famine. I'm suggesting that the way Avram understands the famine is, oh, that means that I'm not, this isn't the land, I've got to go further. He doesn't know where the boundaries are. So he continues going further until there's a place where there is food. What happens there? Things go south. And he has to leave. So, okay, I guess it's not there. In other words, how do I understand what Hashem means? There's going to be indicators. So now, close the parentheses, come back to Yaakov. Yaakov doesn't understand how this is going to play out. He comes, he settles down in Shechem, and what happens? His daughter has suddenly become the love match of the prince of the, uh, of the area. Yaakov stays silent because he wants to see what's going to happen. What do the brothers do? They sound as if, and Yaakov's listening, they sound as if they're going for plan A, A for Avraham. Great! You'll do Brit Milah, we'll become part of one nation, we'll all be done, and we'll intermarry, it's great. As far as Yaakov is concerned, this is playing out the way it's supposed to play out. What Yaakov doesn't know, and again, remember, Yaakov does not have Sefer Breshi in front of him. What Yaakov does not know is Bimirma. Now, what does the word Bimirma remind us of? Because although the root, Reish Mem He, shows up dozens of times in Tanakh, the noun, Mirma, shows up only twice. Yaakov and Esav, and Yitzchak says it to Esav, he says, Ba'achicha b'mirma. And this will tie it together. Because what the brothers said was, you do bring me la, we're cool. You can do this. What actually plays out? They do bring me la. The, Yaakov does not know about this Mirma. And notice that the Mirma is related to Yaakov and Esav. What does Yitzchak tell Esav after the crestfallen brother learns that his younger brother has deceptively taken the bracha? Ve'al You are going to be a man of the sword. Whatever that may mean, the sword is associated with Esav. Parenthetically, and we're going to come back to it within a few minutes, on his deathbed, when Yaakov issues his rebuke of Shimon Levi, part two, he says the following to them, Shimon Levi Achim, Klei Hamas Mecherotehem. Their violent weapons are stolen. Stolen from whom? Stolen from Aesop. What is Shimon Levi doing with swords? What are they behaving this way for? 
Yaakov got the Bechorah from Esau, which led him to have to run away. And now that the family is back, Yaakov's kids are stealing back from Esau his shita and are taking his sword. So what does Yaakov say to the brothers? Afanort, on the spot, alatai. So far, three languages, none of Hebrew. What have you done? You have fouled me. Why have you fouled me? Because I have the opportunity to actually start Yerushat Haaretz now, to start the process now, by following in Avram's footsteps, by buying land, by being connected to the people here, by having them join the Brit, building Mizbachot, and you fouled all of that. There are two problems with what they did. People generally read Yaakov's statement here as a tactical statement. There's nothing ethical about it. It's tactical. We're going to get creamed. But Yaakov is saying two things. The second one is tactical. We are a small group. They're going to wipe us out. But the first half is ideological. We had the opportunity to start building our presence in the land the way it should have been. And you took it upon yourselves to foul it. What does Yaakov say at the end? Take a look at the bottom of page two. I didn't that's number two. What was that? Did they say the same to me? No, the first thing that Yaakov says is, Akhartem oti la That's first. You fouled me, meaning my reputation, oh. my, my ability to teach, my ability to, okay. right? The second thing is that tactically, we're a small group, we're going to get creamed. What does Yaakov say on his deathbed? So we typically read the deathbed rebuke of Shimon Levi as being the real thing, and what he said on the spot as being kind of an ad hoc, not the real thing. I don't think it's the case. I think they're both the real thing. What does he say on his deathbed? Shimon Levi achim klei Hamas mecherotehem. The way that you fight isn't the way you're supposed to fight. You stole your method of fighting from my brother, who we did everything to get away from. Besodam al tavon afshi, bikalam al techad kvodi. I just don't want to be associated with you guys. Terrible thing for a man to say on his deathbed, but hey, I don't mean associated with you guys. Don't mention me. Famous thing, Ben Korach, Ben Yitzhar, Ben Kat, Ben Levi. Not Ben Yisrael. But look at the end of it. Whether that's about what happened here or perhaps some Rishonim claim it's about Chirat Yosef. So to soften a little bit, he doesn't curse them, he curses their anger. Okay? This is the part I want to get to. What does that mean? What does Yaakov say to Shimon and Levi? They're not going to get the land. What actually plays out in history? What happens to start with Levi? Because that's a little bit more sympathetic. What? Levi doesn't get land, but Levi does get cities that every tribe has to give them. Levi earned their partial restoration, either at the Egel or with Pinchas. At some point along the way, they earned some sort of a half restoration. Only half. 
What about Shimon? What happened to them? They got a few cities inside of Yehuda. If you take a look at the beginning of Sefer Shoftim, they are really treated, sorry, sorry to say, like Nabuchs. They pretty much disappear from the map quickly. And in Divrei Hayamim, we find that they end up sort of disappearing, Dafka, look at this, in Edom. Wow. Talk about full circle. That's where they disappear, in the time of Chizkiyahu. How come Shimon and Levi don't get land? Because they prevented Yerushat HaKetz. They were the ones who got in the way of this great opportunity that Yaakov had to start Yerushat HaKetz. Now we're going to play a very quick game of what if. What if it had worked? There's no way to know. But let's play the game anyways. What if it had worked? What if Shimon and Levi and all the other brothers had said, okay, it's cool, they did the Brit Milah, great. Then what? And we don't know. But one thing that seems pretty clear is we wouldn't have any Mara on our plate. The whole story of Shibud Mitzrayim all starts because it doesn't play out this way. By the way, many other stories also. Shimon and Levi single-handedly, or double-handedly, sorry, take into their hands not just the what they perceive as the purity of their sister and the honor of the family, but perhaps knowingly, perhaps unknowingly, take into their hands all of Jewish history. And specifically by defying father, and, the, and their, their defying their father was not overt. But what should they have done? should have counseled with Father and said, Father, how should we respond to this? Instead, what did they do? They spoke by Mirma, they presented a plan that Father was very happy with, and then when nobody was looking, chop, chop. What we've done over the course of the past uh, 50, uh, 62 minutes or so is to take a look at the story of Dina in Shechem. What I proposed at the beginning was that it's important for us when studying together to be able to also take away some methodological lessons that we can apply elsewhere and perhaps to even come out with a messer, with a, story, with a message. What we did see in looking at this story was that many things blind us to reading the story honestly. I'm not saying this is the only way to read it. But it's very hard to read it this way when you're already convinced that this is a rape and an abduction and Shechem is just a terrible guy. By looking carefully at the story, by reading it in its context, by putting ourselves into the story and saying, what do the characters actually know? It allowed us at least the opportunity to suggest a different exegetical approach to this entire story which I propose is the reason the entire story is here, to show us how Yerushat Haaretz could have played out and how our history could have played out. And perhaps to echo the Agadot that we'll be studying a week from today, traditionally, about this Sikari and about the, about the zealots in Yerushalayim and their behavior, that it's when individuals take it upon themselves to quote-unquote right the wrong, sometimes what happens is that the divine plans are foiled. Mir Hashem, next year we should all meet together with 
clean faces and a bottle of wine. But in the meantime, everybody should have a wonderful, wonderful rest of the day and wonderful time studying together here.